The following is a Hammer podcast produced by the Hammer Museum. For full program and exhibition information, visit hammer.ucla.edu. Greetings and welcome to the Hammer Museum. Tonight we have David Foster Wallace. who will read for 30 minutes, take some questions here, sign books upstairs in our bookstore after. A quick thanks to Branya and Andy Gala for their kind contribution to this series. When we read David Foster Wallace's essays, stories, and novels, we are reminded of how broad and deep and shining each form can be. DFW's deep, soulful relationship to English resonates on so many frequencies providing readers with a cerebral ride unmatched in contemporary literature. He is the high watermark in writing, the brains behind eight beautiful books that have rocked American culture and engaged directly with the way we live and breathe. Those titles include The Broom of the System, Girl with Curious Hair, Infinite Jest, a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again, Brief interviews with hideous men, everything and more, oblivion, and most recently, consider the lobster. Please welcome America's most radical language artist whose complex, generous comic art has improved the lives of so many of us, the brave and mighty David Foster Wallace. going to run away. I just couldn't figure out where to put the bag. So it was an absurdly nice introduction, Ben, so thank you. And uh, <clears throat> okay. if I just look at you for a second, I won't be quite as nervous. Um, okay. um, so the, the bulk of this book is four or five really long pieces, and what I thought I would do is read um, is do one of the shorter ones so that I can do just about all of it. Um, and I now you have to listen to two introductions because I have something called stuff to say so that peace makes more sense when read out loud. So, this gets, uh, the, the, the piece's title is The View uh, from Mrs. Thompson's, which I'm pretty sure is not my title. I think it, um, it's Rolling Stone's. Rolling Stone, um, at a very obvious time in 2001, commissioned... I think maybe 10 writers to do a kind of where were you when Kennedy was shot piece on, uh, on the 9-11 tragedy. Um, the, the deadline was, was something like September 15th or 16th of 2001, which meant I th I'm pretty sure this is the fastest thing I've ever done, which um, made me not like the piece and not look at it for a long time. But, na but now I've, um, I like it a lot more, although I think part of it is that um, for me, it's kind of the only evocation I've ever done of, of the town that I lived in at the time. Now I live out here. Uh, since this is a piece where the people in it are, uh, are people I actually know, some of their names are shortened to initials to protect their privacy in the remote chance that you care. This is done with an initial and then two M dashes, like in, in a Victorian novel. I 
that probably wasn't worth putting in there. Uh, in, in case you don't remember, September 11th, 2001 was a Tuesday, which makes Wednesday obviously the 12th. The events of 9-11 are referred to in the piece as the horror with a capital H, which I, which I vaguely recall had there was some relation to, to Conrad's Kurtz, but I don't now know what it is, but I have to tell you that it's the horror so that you don't just think I'm using the word horror over and over and over again. The only other thing is that there's a convenience store chain in here that's referred to as hideous, um, and its name is, is quick and easy, and so that the hideous makes more sense to you, I need to explain that the quick and easy is literally K-W-I-K hyphen N hyphen E-Z. So you have to imagine that as your... So the first chunk is called, is called Wednesday. Everyone has flags out, homes, businesses. It's very odd. You never see anybody putting out a flag, but by Wednesday morning, there they all are. Big flags, small, regular flag-sized flags. A lot of homeowners here have those special angled flag holders by their front door, the kind whose brace takes four Phillips screws. Plus thousands of the little handheld flags on a stick you normally see at parades. Some yards have dozens of these stuck in the ground all over, as if they'd somehow all just sprouted overnight. Rural road people attach the little flags to their mailboxes out by the street. A good number of vehicles have them wedged in their grill or attached to the antenna. Some upscale people have actual poles. Their flags are at half-mast. More than a few large homes around swanky Franklin Park or out on the east side even have enormous multi-story flags hanging gonfalon style down over their facades. It's a total mystery where people can buy flags this big or how they got them up there or when. My own next door neighbor, a retired bookkeeper and US Air Force vet whose home and lawn care are nothing short of phenomenal has a regulation-size anodized flagpole secured in 18 inches of reinforced cement that none of the other neighbors like very much because they feel it draws lightning. He says there's a very particular etiquette to having your flag at half-mast. You're supposed to first run it all the way up to the finial at the top and then bring it halfway down. Otherwise, it's some kind of insult. His flag is out straight and popping smartly in the wind. It's far and away the biggest flag on our street. You can also hear the wind in the cornfields just south. It sounds roughly the way light surf sounds when you're two dunes back from the shore. Mr. N's pole's halyard has metal elements that clank against the pole when it's windy, which is something else the neighbors don't much care for. His driveway and mine are almost right together, and he's out here on a stepladder polishing his pole with some kind of special ointment and a chamois cloth. I kid you not. Although in the morning sun, it's true that his metal pole does shine like God's own wrath. Hell of a nice flag and display apparatus, Mr. N. He says, ought to be, cost enough. Seen all the other flags out everywhere this morning? This gets him to look down and smile, if a bit grimly. Something, isn't it? Mr. N is not what you'd call the friendliest next door neighbor. I really only know him because his church and mine are in the same softball league, for which he serves with great seriousness and precision as his team's statistician. We are not close. Nevertheless, he's the first one I ask. Say, Mr. N, 
Suppose somebody like a foreign person or a TV reporter or something were to come by and ask you what the purpose of all these flags after what happened yesterday was exactly. What do you think you'd say? Why, he says, after a little moment of giving me the same sort of look he usually gives my lawn, to make a statement of support toward what's going on as Americans. The overall point being that on Wednesday here, there's a weird accretive pressure to have a flag out. If the purpose of displaying a flag is to make a statement, it seems like at a certain point of density of flags, you're making more of a statement if you don't have a flag out. It's not totally clear what statement this would be, though. What if you just don't happen to have a flag? Where has everyone gotten these flags, especially the little ones you can fasten to your mailbox? Are they all from the 4th of July and people just save them like Christmas ornaments? How do they know to do this? There's nothing in the yellow pages under flag. At some point, there starts to be actual tension. Nobody walks by or stops their car and says, hey, how come your house doesn't have a flag? But it gets easier and easier to imagine them thinking it. Even a sort of half-collapsed house down the road that everybody thought was abandoned has one of the little flags on a stick in the weeds by the driveway. None of Bloomington's grocery stores turn out to stock flags. The big novelty shop downtown has nothing but Halloween stuff. Only a few businesses are actually open, but even the closed ones are now displaying some sort of flag. It's almost surreal. The VFW hall is obviously a good bet, but it can't open until noon, if at all. It has a bar. The counter lady at Burwell Oil references a certain hideous, quick and easy convenience store out by Interstate 55, at which she's pretty sure she recalls seeing some little plastic flags back in the racks with all the bandanas and NASCAR caps. But by the time I get down there, the plastic flags all turn out to be gone, snapped up by parties unknown. The cold reality is that there is not a flag to be had in this town. Stealing one out of somebody's yard is clearly just out of the question. I'm standing in a fluorescent lit, quick and easy, afraid to go home. All those people dead, and I'm sent to the edge by a plastic flag. It doesn't get really bad until people come over and ask if I'm okay, and I have to lie and say it's a Benadryl reaction, which in fact can happen. And so on, until in one more of the horror's weird twists of fate and circumstance, it's the quick and easy proprietor himself a Pakistani, by the way, who offers solace and a shoulder and a strange kind of unspoken understanding, and who lets me go back and sit in the stockroom amid every conceivable petty vice and indulgence America has to offer and compose myself, and who only slightly later, after styrofoam cups of a strange kind of perfumey tea with a great deal of milk in it, suggests construction paper and, quote, magical markers. which explains my now beloved and proudly displayed homemade flag. <laughs> the next chunk is called, um, is called Aerial and Ground Views. Bloomington is a city of 65,000 in the central part of a state that is extremely emphatically flat so that you can see the town's salience from way far away. Three major interstates converge here at several rail lines. The town's almost exactly halfway between Chicago and St. Louis, and its origins involve being an important train depot. Bloomington is the birthplace of Adlai Stevenson and the putative hometown of Colonel Blake on MASH. 
It has a smaller twin city, Normal, that's built around a public university and is a whole different story. Both towns together are like 110,000 people. As Midwest cities go, the only remarkable thing about Bloomington is its prosperity. It is all but recession-proof. Some of this is due to the county's due to the surrounding county's farmland, which is world-class fertile and so expensive per acre that a civilian can't even find out how much it really costs. But Bloomington is also the national headquarters for State Farm, which is the great dark god of U.S. consumer insurance and for all practical purposes owns the town, and because of which Bloomington's east side is now all smoke glass complexes and build-to-suit developments and a six-lane beltway of malls and franchises that's killing off the old downtown, plus an ever-wider split between the town's two basic classes and cultures, so well and truly symbolized by the SUV and the pickup truck, respectively. There's a quick note here. Contrary to some people's impression, the native accent around here isn't southern so much as just rural. The town's corporate transplants, on the other hand, have no accent at all. In Mrs. Bracero's phrase, State Farm people, quote, sound like the folks on TV. Winter here is a pitiless bitch, but in the warm months, Bloomington is a lot like a seaside community, except here the ocean is corn, which grows steroidically and stretches to the Earth's curve in all directions. The town itself in summer is intensely green, streets bathed in tree shade and homes explosive gardens and dozens of manicured parks and ball fields and golf courses you almost need eye protection to look at and broad weedless fertilized lawns all made to line up exactly flush to the sidewalk with special edging tools. To be honest, it's all a little creepy, especially in high summer when nobody's out and all that green just sits in the heat and seethes. Like most Midwest towns, Bloomington Normal is crammed with churches, four full pages in the phone book. Everything from Unitarian to bug-eyed Pentecostal. There's even a church for agnostics. There actually is. But except for church, plus I guess maybe parades, fireworks, and a couple corn festivals, there isn't much public community. Everybody has his family and neighbors and tight little circle of friends. Folks keep to themselves. The native term for light conversation is visit. They basically all play softball or golf and grill out and watch their kids play soccer and sometimes go to mainstream movies. And they watch massive, staggering amounts of TV. I don't mean just the kids, either. Something that's obvious but important to keep in mind regarding Bloomington and September 11th's horror is that reality any felt sense of a larger world is mainly televisual. New York skyline, for instance, is as recognizable here as any place else, but what it's recognizable from is TV. Television is also a more social phenomenon than, say, on the East Coast, where in my experience people are almost constantly leaving home to go meet other people face-to-face -face in public places. There don't really tend to be parties or mixers per se so much here, what you do in Bloomington is all get together at somebody's house and watch something. In Bloomington, therefore, to have a home without a TV is to become a kind of constant and Kramer-like presence in others' homes. <laughs> a perpetual guest of folks who can't quite understand why somebody wouldn't own a TV but are totally respectful of your need to watch TV. 
and who will offer you access to their TV in the same instinctive way they'd bend to offer a hand if you fell down in the street. This is especially true for some kind of must-see crisis-type situation like the 2000 election or this week's horror. All you have to do is call someone you know and say you don't have a TV. Well, shoot, boy, get over here. The next chunk is called Tuesday. There are maybe 10 days a year when it's gorgeous in Bloomington, and September 11th is one of them. The air is clear and temperate and wonderfully dry after several weeks of what's felt very much like living in someone's armpit. It's just before serious harvesting starts, when the region's pollen is at its worst, and a good percentage of the city is stoned on Benadryl, which, as you probably know, tends to give the early morning a kind of dreamy underwater quality. Time-wise, we're an hour behind the East Coast. By 8 a.m., everybody with a job is at it, and just about everybody else is home drinking coffee and blowing their nose and watching Today or one of the other network AM shows that all broadcast, it goes without saying, from New York. At 8 o'clock on Tuesday, I personally was in the shower trying to listen to a Chicago Bears postmortem on WSCR Sports Radio out of Chicago, which there will also be another one tomorrow. The church I belong to is on the south side of Bloomington, near where my house is. Most of the people I know well enough to ask if I can come over and watch their TV are members of my church. It's not one of those churches where people throw Jesus' name around a lot or talk about the end times, but it's fairly serious, and people in the congregation get to know each other well and to be pretty tight. As far as I know, all the congregants are natives of the area. Most are working class or retired from same. There are some small business owners. A fair number are veterans and or have kids in the military or especially in the reserves because for many of these families, that's simply what you do to pay for college. The house I end up sitting with shampoo in my hair watching most of the actual unfolding horror at belongs to Mrs. Thompson, who is one of the world's cooler 74-year-olds and exactly the kind of person who in an emergency, even if her phone is busy, you know you can just come on over. She lives about a mile away from me on the other side of a mobile home park. The streets are not crowded, but they're also not as empty as they're going to get. Mrs. Thompson's is a tiny, immaculate, one-story home that on the west coast would be called a bungalow and on the south side of Bloomington is called a house. <laughs> Mrs. Thompson is a longtime member and leader in the congregation, and her living room tends to be kind of a gathering place. She's also the mom of one of my very best friends here, F., who was in the Rangers in Vietnam and got shot in the knee and now works for a contractor installing various kinds of franchise stores in malls. He's in the middle of a divorce and living with Mrs. Thompson while the court decides on the disposition of his home. F is one of those veterans who doesn't talk about the war or belong to the VFW, but is sometimes preoccupied in a dark way and goes quietly off to camp by himself over Memorial Day weekend, and you can tell that he carries some serious shit in his head. Like most people who work construction, he wakes up very early and was long gone by the time I got to his mom's, which happened to be just after the second plane hit the South Tower, meaning probably around 8.10. In retrospect, the first sign of possible shock was the fact that I didn't ring the bell but just came on in, which normally here one would never do. 
Thanks in part to her son's trade connections, Mrs. Thompson has a 40-inch flat panel Phillips TV on which Dan Rather appears for a second in shirt sleeves with his hair slightly mussed. Several other ladies from church are already over here, but I don't know if I exchanged greetings with anyone because I remember when I came in, everybody was staring transfixed at one of the very few pieces of video CBS never re-ran, which was a distant wide-angle shot of the North Tower and its top floor's exposed steel lattice in flames and of little dots detaching from the building and moving through smoke down the screen, which then a sudden jerky tightening of the shot revealed the dots to be actual people in coats and ties and skirts with their shoes falling off as they fell, some hanging onto ledges or girders and then letting go, upside down or wriggling as they fell, and one couple almost seeming unverifiable to be hugging each other as they fell those several stories and shrank back to dots as the camera then all of a sudden pulled back to the long view. <clears throat> I have no idea how long the clip took, after which Dan Rather's mouth seemed to move for a second before any sound emerged, and everyone in the living room sat back and looked at one another with expressions that seemed both childlike and terribly old. I think one or two people made some sort of sound. I'm not sure what else to say. It seems grotesque to talk about being traumatized by a piece of video when the people in the video were dying. Excuse me. Something about the shoes also falling made it worse. I think the older ladies took it better than I did. Then the hideous beauty of the rerun clip of the second plane hitting the tower, the blue and silver and black and spectacular orange of it as more little moving dots fell. Mrs. Thompson was in her chair, which is a rocker with floral cushions. The living room has two other chairs and a huge corduroy sofa that F and I had had to take the front door off its hinges to get in the house. All the seats were occupied, meaning I think five or six other people, most women, all these over 50, and there were more voices in the kitchen, one of which was very upset sounding and belonged to the psychologically delicate Mrs. R., who I don't know very well, but is said to have once been a beauty of great local repute. Many of the people are Mrs. Thompson's neighbors, and some are still in robes, and at various times people leave to go home and use the phone and come back, or leave altogether. One younger lady went to go take her children out of school, and then other people came. At one point, around the time the South Tower was falling so perfectly seeming down into itself, I remember thinking that it was falling sort of the way an elegant lady faints, but it was Mrs. Bracero's normally pretty much useless and irritating son, Dwayne, who pointed out that what it really looked like is if you took some film of a NASA liftoff and ran it backwards, which now, after several reviewings, does seem dead on. Anyway, at that point, there were at least a dozen people in the house. The living room was dim because in summer here, everyone always keeps their drapes pulled. There's another brief note. Mrs. Thompson's living room is prototypical working-class Bloomington, too. Double-pane windows, white Sears curtains with valance, catalog clocks with a background of mallards, wood-grain magazine rack with Christian Science Monitor and Reader's Digest, inset bookshelves used to display little collectible figurines and framed photos of relatives and their families. There are two knit samplers with the Desiderata and Prayer of St. Francis, anti-macassars on every good chair, and wall-to-wall carpet so thick that you can't see your feet. Not shoes. You take your shoes off at Mrs. Thompson's door. 
it's basic common courtesy. Is it normal not to remember things very well after only a couple days, or at any rate, the order of things? I know at some point for a while there was the sound outside of some neighbor mowing his lawn, which seemed totally bizarre, but I don't remember if anybody remarked on it. Sometimes it seemed like nobody said anything and sometimes like everybody was talking at once. There was also a lot of telephonic activity. None of these women carry cell phones, though Duane Bracero has a pager whose function is unclear. So it's just Mrs. Thompson's old wall mount in the kitchen. Not all the calls made rational sense. One side effect of the horror was an overwhelming desire to call everyone you loved. It was established early on that you couldn't get New York. Dialing 212 yielded only a weird whooping sound. People keep asking Mrs. Thompson's permission until she tells them to knock it off and for heaven's sake just use the phone. Some of the ladies reach their husbands, who are apparently all gathered around TVs and radios at their various workplaces. For a while, bosses are too shocked to think to send people home. Mrs. Thompson has coffee on, but another sign of crisis is that if you want some, you have to go get it yourself. Usually when you come over here, it just sort of appears. From the door to the kitchen, I remember seeing the second tower fall and being confused about whether it was a replay of the first tower falling. Another thing about the hay fever is that you can't ever be totally sure someone's crying, but over the two hours of first-run horror, with bonus reports of the crash in Pennsylvania and Bush being moved into a sack bunker and a car bomb that's gone off in Chicago, the latter report then retracted. Pretty much everybody either cries or comes very close, according to his or her relative abilities. Mrs. Thompson says less than almost anyone. I don't think she cries, but she doesn't rock in her chair as usual either. Her first husband's death was apparently sudden and grisly, and I know at times during the war her son F would be out in the field and she wouldn't hear from him for weeks at a time and didn't know whether he was even alive. Duane Bracero's main contribution is to keep iterating how much like a movie it all seems. Duane, who's at least 25 but still lives at home while supposedly studying to be a welder, is one of those people who always wears camouflage t-shirts and paratrooper boots but would never dream of actually enlisting, as, to be fair, neither would I. He has also kept his hat, the front of which promotes something called slipknot, on his head, indoors, in Mrs. Thompson's house. It always seems to be important to have at least one person in the vicinity to hate. It turns out the cause of poor tendony Mrs. R's meltdown in the kitchen is that she has either a grandniece or removed cousin who's doing some type of internship at Time Incorporated in the Time Life Building, or whatever it's called now, about which Mrs. R and whoever she's managed to call know only that it's a vertiginously tall skyscraper someplace in New York City, and she's out of her mind with worry. And two other ladies have been out here the whole time holding both her hands and trying to decide whether they should call her doctor. Mrs. R has kind of a history, and I end up doing pretty much the only good I do all day by explaining to Mrs. R where exactly Midtown Manhattan is. It thereupon emerges that none of the people here I'm watching the horror with, not even the couple ladies who'd gone to see Cats as part of some group tour thing through the church in 1991, have even the vaguest notion of New York's layout and don't know, for example, how radically far south the financial district and Statue of Liberty are. 
They have to be shown this via pointing out the ocean in the foreground of the skyline they all know so well on TV. That half-assed little geography lesson is the start of a feeling of alienation from these good people that builds in me all throughout the part of the horror where people flee rubble and dust. These ladies are not stupid or ignorant. These ladies are not stupid or ignorant. Mrs. Thompson can read both Latin and Spanish. And Ms. Voigtlander is a certified speech therapist who once explained to me that the strange gulping sound that makes NBC's Tom Brokaw so distracting to listen to is an actual speech impediment called a glottal L. It was one of the ladies out in the kitchen supporting Mrs. R who pointed out that September 11th is the anniversary of the Camp David Accords, which was news to me. What these Bloomington ladies are, or start to seem to me, is innocent. There is what would strike many Americans as a marked, startling lack of cynicism in the living room. It does not, for instance, occur to anyone here to remark on how it's maybe a little odd that all three network anchors are in shirt sleeves, or to consider the possibility that Dan Rather's hairs being mussed might not be wholly accidental, or that the constant rerunning of traumatizing footage might not be just in case some viewers were only now tuning in and hadn't seen it yet. None of these ladies seem to notice the president's odd little lightless eyes appear to get closer and closer together throughout his taped address, nor that some of his lines sound almost plagiaristically identical to those uttered by Bruce Willis, as a right-wing wacko recall, in the movie The Siege a couple years back. <laughs> nor that at least some of the sheer weirdness of watching the horror unfold has been how closely various shots and scenes have mirrored the plots of everything from Tom Clancy to Die Hard to Air Force One. Nobody's, nobody's near hip enough here to lodge the sick and obvious postmodern complaint. We've seen all this before. Instead, what they do is all sit together and feel really bad and pray. No one in Mrs. Thompson's crew would ever be so nauseous as to try to get everybody to pray aloud or form a prayer circle, but you can still tell what they're all doing. Make no mistake, this is mostly a good thing. It forces you to think and do things you most likely wouldn't alone. Like, for instance, while watching Bush's address and his eyes to pray silently and fervently that you're wrong about the president, that your view of him is maybe distorted and he's actually far smarter and more substantial than you want to believe. Not just some soulless golem or nexus of corporate interest dressed up in a suit, but a statesman of courage and probity, and, and it's good. This is good to pray this way. It's just a bit lonely to have to. Truly decent, innocent people can be taxing to be around. I'm not for a moment trying to suggest that everyone I know in Bloomington is like Mrs. Thompson. For example, her son F. isn't, though he's an outstanding person. I'm trying, rather, to explain how some part of the horror's horror was knowing, deep in my own heart, that whatever America the men in those planes hated so much was far more my America and F.'s and poor old loathsome Duane's than it was these ladies. So that's, that's all of the thing that I'm gonna read, so thanks. Thank you for listening to this Hammer podcast. The Hammer Museum is located at 10899 Wilshire Boulevard in Westwood, Los Angeles. 
Public programs at the Hammer Museum are always free to the public. For a full schedule of upcoming events, visit hammer.ucla.edu.